Well, read down with me to uh, verse 9, starting at verse 1. It says, But now this, uh, but know this, that in, last, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but not but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households, make captive of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So, kind of a harsh text to end my time here with you guys, but as you know, we go verse by verse through the Bible, and um, this is where maybe it's going to end. Who knows? I have a couple more weeks. So, um, to start out, the first thing it says here is, But know this, and understand that we actually have a command to be knowledgeable in things. The word there is gnosko. We have a command to be knowledgeable in the things of God. Specifically here, it's talking about the end times. And it's funny, as we move closer and closer to the end of all things, the church is straying further and further from the knowledge of end times. There are church groups today that are saying you shouldn't talk about prophecy. You shouldn't read the book of Revelation. The book of Daniel is irrelevant, and Isaiah is irrelevant. We need to be those that are on our toes. We need to be ready for the things that are coming. Because we are in the end times currently. It it continues there in verse 1 by saying, In the last days, and stop there, what are the last days? According to scripture, the last days started in Acts chapter 2 at the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? The filling of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven. So, before we jump into this, because I need to give you a little context. The Holy Spirit has already overshadowed the apostles and they've spoken in tongues. In which uh, all of the people in the area, well most of the people in the area, have understood the praising of God in their own language. Exciting stuff. So here in verse 14 it says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass 
in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. For sons, uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants and on my uh, men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you have this whole portion of human history which started about 2,000 years ago, a little less than 2,000 years ago, uh, up until today, and will continue until the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ steps foot back here on earth, um, that is called the last days. And the last days will be filled with two things. Perilous times will grow worse and worse and worse, and the Holy Spirit will be given to those who believe and follow Jesus Christ. That's exciting. That's not negative. And as things get worse and worse on earth, we're going to see the church shine brighter and brighter and brighter. Hopefully, that's exactly what we're doing in our lives. So the last days are the thing that we should know, we should have intimate knowledge of. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So it says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Perilous times. Perilous is not a, a usual word for us. Uh, it's not a word that, that I think of using in my normal vocabulary. It's actually something I would think a sailor on like a, a pirate ship would say, perilous times, you know. Um, the truth is the word means to lower down from a higher place, to reduce in strength. So times are coming when they will be reduced in strength. Or they'll be lowered from the current place that they're at. That's the idea here. Perilous times will come. And what do those perilous times look like? Well, they're, they're defined by perilous men. That's what it comes down to. Verse 2 says, For men will be lovers of themselves. And tell me that this isn't what we see in our world today. Men and women, the word there is not just men. Man, it's mankind, all humanity will be lovers of themselves. Is that what our culture, specifically our culture, everything that we experience here in the United States, is that what we experience? People loving themselves. The word there is philautos. It's, it's to be fond of oneself. To care for one's needs more than others. It's a very sad state of affairs when we care more about our affairs than those of everyone around us. Why? Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I actually just taught on this in men's group this last Tuesday. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Philippians 2, 3. says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Why is it a, a sad state of affairs when the church, and remember, Timothy is being written to by Paul as the leader of the church. He's addressing the things of the church. Why is it a sad state of affairs when the church become lovers of themselves rather than lovers of others? Because we're doing the very opposite of what the Holy Spirit has called us to. It says, let us not esteem ourselves better than others, but instead we should esteem others higher than us with the lowliness of mind. Verse 4, let each of you look out not for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Why? Verse 5, let, hi- let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What that's simply saying is Jesus didn't find it weird that he is God. That's what it's simply saying. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance, in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So, this is the mind that we should have as the church of God, as the children of God, exalting others over self, caring about the needs, the wants, the, de- the desires of others over our own needs, wants, and desires. Is that something that defines us? Now, we can look at the church in general and say, wow, that's really what we're seeing. Things are waxing worse. But what are we doing about our own self and how we act? It's very easy to point the finger outside and say, look at what the church is doing. Or even worse, look at what the world is doing. But how hard is it to internalize this? Do I care about others' needs over my own? Am I following the example of Jesus Christ in his service towards humanity, dying for those who don't deserve it, spending time with those who the religious outsiders would call uh, sinners, the prostitutes, the lawyers, the outcasts from society? Perilous times will be coming Because perilous men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of the very people God sent his son to die for. Pretty intense. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. For these men will be lovers of self, of themselves. Continuing, lovers of money. Lovers of money. This is a word that means fond of silver. Uh, We would know it as covetousness. And um, we need to be very careful with this because we know in the book of James we're told that the love of money is the beginning of all kinds of evil. That is a, a start of a downfall that we don't want to be part of, that we don't want to be involved in, the love of money. Now, it's not the fact that money's evil. Money's not evil. Money's amoral. It, it, it has no good nor bad. But our love of money 
creates evil inside of us because we now have to protect money. You think about it, our love of our children creates a certain uh, a protectiveness of our children. We watch out for them. We make sure they're not running into the street. We make sure that evil people don't come and take them. If we have that same fondness for money, that is how we're going to act over money. And, and this is the very thing that the Bible's saying you should not be part of. So understand that in, in the end times, people will be those who are fond of silver, fond of money. Luke chapter 16, 14 through 15 tells us that the Pharisees themselves were lovers of money. This was in a description where, where Jesus is describing the love of mammon, the worship of mammon. And then he continued by saying, the Pharisees, they love money. And because of their love of money, they hate me. That's a very scary thing to think about. Because how much of the church today are lovers of money? Are literally coming to church to worship because of the money that they could receive. There are ministries out there today that say, if you give to this ministry, you will receive more money. Wow, what a terrible, terrible way to do church. Lovers of money. He continues by saying, boasters, boasters. Now, this is a funny one to me, uh, working outside in the world. It's, uh, the word is braggers or an empty pretender. And it, it reminds me of the interview process that we go through for getting jobs. I, I'm currently a director for a company, and I've done quite a bit of hiring. And people come in with a resume or an application that boasts about their past, that, that tells you about their past and how amazing they are. And pretty much, you could downplay whatever they say by like 20%. You could look at it and go, uh, well, some of this is true, but a lot of it is really built up. And when you're hiring, you, you got to kind of take that in mind. But every manager or, or anyone hiring knows this, that, that what's going to come on the resume is these boasts of greatness. In fact, I had one guy come in trying to get a, a specific position, and, and the thing that he kept saying is, if you saw my work, you wouldn't even believe how good it is. And instantly it was like, wow, that's really not something I want to hear from you. <laughs> You're boasting. You're bragging of yourself. Well, how often is that found in the church? How often is that found in our lives? Here's a simple one. When someone says to you, hey, how you doing? What's usually what comes out of it? I'm doing great. I'm walking in the grace of Christ. I hear that a lot. That's not a bad thing. You are walking in the grace of Christ. That's true. But, but how are you truly doing? Now, the question, on the other hand, is are people really wanting to know how you're doing, or is that just a form of, of uh, how you, uh, hi, good to see you? Boasters. The next word there is proud. And the idea there is appearing above others. 
It's an appearance of superiority. Is that something that we give off? When we walk into a room, do we walk in and it looks like we're floating? Look, if we're truthful, all humanity is the same. We're all sinful beings. We're all in need of a Savior. There's not one person above another. Are we proud? You know, this is a a very scary thing for me because as I walk around out there, not in these walls, you know, it's really easy in these walls to, to do the Christian thing. But when I'm out there in the world, what the world wants to do with me is say, oh, the pastor's around, don't cuss. Oh, the pastor's around, act holy. And I constantly am telling people, you don't have to do that for me. You don't have to act holy. You don't have to stop cussing. You don't have to stop smoking your cigarette. You don't have to do any of that when I'm here. Because I'm not the one you're trying to impress. I'm the wrong one. I'm just like you. I'm a sinner in need of grace. The difference is I know Jesus. Do you want to know Jesus? You know, it becomes a very... Uh, a healthy thing, a very helpful thing to be able to say to people, look, I have no difference from you. I'm just like you. I don't see myself above you. Because truth is, I'm just like you. But I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. And the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin. The Holy Spirit tells me what's right. The Holy Spirit leads me to truth. Proud. The next word there is blasphemers. Now, normally when we hear this word, we hear we think of a word that means uh, to say something bad against God. The word here actually means to speak evil of men or God. So those who are speaking evil of men or God, that's what we're going to see in the end times by perilous men in perilous times. People who speak evil of each other. Now, I don't want to see you guys raise your hand, but how often do we see that both in and outside of the church? It's actually a way of progressing your career now. You speak bad about someone, you might get their job. In the church, you speak bad about someone, you may look good in front of the pastor. Which, by the way, you don't ever have to look good in front of the pastor. I know your pastor. He's amazing, but you don't have to try to look good in front of him. Blasphemers. Empty pretenders. Boasters. Proud blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Here's one that we like to rail on our kids with, right? Look, the Bible says disobedient to parents. It's kind of a a funny word. It's the... It's the falling away of the climate of parenting. uh, The children are no longer responding to parents' correction. And I hear, I talked to to Nanny. Most of you know Nanny. I talked to my dad. I talked to my grandfather before he passed. And he says, children act way worse to parents than they ever did in my lifetime. They all say that. And it's true. Kids are waxing worse and worse and worse. And very often what parents want to do is blame the child. Don't. You know, they get all mad and angry and yell. 
The truth is, as sin becomes more acceptable, parents are allowing sin in their life, children are following suit. But we need to know that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, it says that there's a blessing that comes in the obedience to parents. Now, obviously, I don't need to preach this very, to, to very many of you. There's a couple of you that are young people here still under your parents' household. But the truth is, is we're called to be obedient to parents. There does come a cutoff to that. I just want to be honest with you all. There comes a time in life when you get out, you're getting married, and parents are trying to get involved in specifics of marriage. They have no place. Now that does speak to us who are parents. We have no place in parenting adults. The whole point of parenting is to get our children to a point where they're ready to go and adult, to go and do life as adults. Our love as parents should never end. That type of correction should end at some point. Otherwise we have households of adult children, which our society is trying to create i.e. making health insurance uh, allowed until the age of 26, calling men and women that are 26 years old children under their parents' households. It's a scary thing. They will be disobedient to parents. The next word there is unthankful. Unthankful. And we see in, that's the end of verse 2, unthankful. The word is to not grant as a favor or not grateful, for, not grateful for help. Now how often do we see this in our society? Where you lend a hand to someone and there's zero gratefulness. We see it in the world all of the time. We see handouts given. In fact, uh, you go and you look at the homeless population. This is very sad to see in our culture. But the homeless population, they're given and given and given, and there's not a, a sense of thankfulness. But what about the church? As the church is given by God, are they thankful to God? Now let's even zoom in a little bit closer. How about yourself? It's easy to complain about the circumstances of life and the hardships of life, but how often are we thankful to God for all of the freedoms that we have, all of the possessions that we have, all of the riches that we have? Truth be told, we're one of the richest nations on earth. If you have pocket change, you're more wealthy than the, the 90, I think it's 95% of all other people on earth. If you have pocket change, it's pretty intense to think about because it's easy to say, well, I'm, I'm poor. I live out here in Maine, and I'm struggling to just barely get by. Not compared to some people. Unthankful. Not to grant as a favor. Understanding that every breath is a favor given to us by God. The next word there in verse 2, the last word is unholy. And the word means defiled by sin. 
And this is speaking of a lifestyle that is defined by the defilement of sin. This is what perilous men and women are going to look like in perilous times. Their life is going to be completely defiled with sin. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, unloving, unloving. And the word there is astorgos, okay? And it's funny with the Greek language. Um, you put an A in front of anything, it gives you the opposite. So, for instance, you have a theist, a person who's a believer in God. You have an atheist, someone who's not a believer in God. Here the word is a Storgos. The word storgos means family love. The idea here is they're going to be without family love, without love for their family. And how, how much our nation is going through a process of removing the family, removing fathers from homes, teaching women to... to to kill their unborn babies without family love. And the church is buying into this stuff. Large portions of the church in America are okay with abortion. Scary stuff. Now just look at the, the atmosphere of our children. How children... Of, of the past, 50s, before, 60s, relied on their parents and love. Now, children are no longer going to their parents for, for love, for that affection. Instead, they're going to hip-hop artists, actors. They're without love for family. We need to be very careful to have that natural affection for family. Now, within the church of God, we're called a family. We're called the family of God, the children of God. And how often are we out of love with the children of God? We need to be very careful to not allow that to be said of us. You know, I meet a lot of people outside in the world that call themselves Christians, and when I say, hey, so where do you go to church? Not that it matters where they go to church. I couldn't care less if they go to a Baptist church, a Pentecostal church, as long as they're a Bible-believing church. But, but asking them, where do they go to church? And they say, oh, no, I don't do that. Oh, why? Well, I tried church, and it's not for me. A stergos without love for the family. Got it. Why? Well, they're, you know, they're sinners. They're hypocrites. Oh, okay, and you're not? Uh, I didn't say that. Yeah, well, so we all are. We all have our struggles. We need to come together as a dysfunctional, functional family and worship Jesus Christ together. All we have is us. This is the family of God. I'm not saying just in this room, but I mean the church, the general church all over the world. It's all we have. And when everything falls apart and we're in heaven 
we're only going to have each other. It's going to be us. Now, don't get me wrong. There's going to be no more sin, no more pain, no more tears. Everything's going to be perfect. We're going to be standing in the presence of Jesus Christ, being taught by the wonderful counselor, the, the absolute prince of peace. But we need to have that natural affection for one another. Continuing, it says unforgiving. And the, the idea is not willing to reconcile. And I've heard it's, it's very, uh, very sad. I've heard a lot of pastors teach that you don't have to forgive. Well, actually, you don't have to forget the sins of those who have harmed you in the past. The forgiveness that this is speaking about is the same forgiveness that Jesus Christ has given to you and I. Forgetting the sins, casting them as far as the east is from the west, and walking through life with you. I am so thankful that my Lord and Savior has done that for me. We need to be careful as the church of God to be forgetting sin and forgiving people. Why? Well, we see in Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, it says, But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why does it matter to have a forgiving heart? Because God wants to forgive you. But in order to be forgiven, we need to forgive much. Very difficult thing. You might say, but James, you don't know what this person has done to me. They've ruined my whole life. Jesus died on the cross for you. I know this is harsh and hard, but we ruined his whole life. He gave it all for you and I. But James, you don't understand? No, I don't. You're right. I probably haven't gone through some of the things you have. But Jesus has. He's asking you to follow in his footsteps. To give it all up. To forgive. To forget. And you know, it's funny. Again, it's saying this will happen in perilous times. End times. People will be unforgiving. How much unforgiveness do we have in our heart? Continuing in verse 3, slanderers. The word slanderers there, it's a, it's a pretty intense word. It means, it's the word diabolos. It's, it's actually the word that means Satan, devil. Why? Because Satan is the false accuser. He's, he's the one that speaks falsely about you to our Father. This is what men and women are going to look like at the end times and perilous times. They're going to be slandering one another, saying false things about one another. We could see this across all cultures. People are saying horrible things about one another. Groups of people are saying horrible things about one another. We need to not be part of that. The twelfth thing that's said 
verse 3, it says, without self-control. Without self-control. The idea is they have no discipline. And they're not able to control their passions. Whether it be for sex, for money, for power, whatever it may be. They're without self-control. And, you know, I could stand up here and say, hey, you all need to have more self-control. But the truth is, is that's not how this works. We're told in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If we want to see the change in the church, which will then create the change in the world, we need to be relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and Him alone. Because without the Holy Spirit, we cannot have self-control. There's no reason to control oneself from those things. The Holy Spirit is the one that changes the mind and the heart in regard to these things. And as we see that sin is more and more acceptable in our culture, people are going to be more and more without self-control. There are Christians now in this state, California, Colorado, all the states that have now allowed marijuana to be legalized. There's Christians saying, hey, well, it's legal now. So I could do it, right? No. (laughs) No, you can't. Well, I shouldn't say that. No, you shouldn't. You're a Christian. Self-control. No, you should not be looking to be intoxicated. Sin is becoming accepted, so our culture and even the church culture is accepting more and more sin, and they're without self-control. And we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and help us, by God's grace, to overcome self, to choose what is correct. The next word there, the 13th word, is brutal. Brutal. In verse 3, what does brutal mean? It means the opposite of tame. That's literally what it means. Um, fear, savage, untamed, brutal. It makes me think of the Romans as they stood around and looked into uh, uh, huge old stadiums filled with Christians just being mauled by lions. Or maybe a huge old stadium surrounded by a cage filled with two men bludgeoning themselves to death. Brutal. Some of them in the name of Jesus. Brutal. What are we seeing in the end times? Brutal, brutal men. We need to be very careful not to be lovers of brutality. Despisers of good. 14th thing there. Despisers of good. It's the last word there in verse 3. It says, despisers of good. Hate anything that is or represents good. It's the love of evil. And we see the attitudes of our culture and government going down this lovers of evil path. Like we just talked about, allowing for more and more sin allowing for more and more things that are against the very nature of God. The church is headed that way as well. 
I listened to Pew Research uh, um, percentages just recently on how the church feels towards sin, and it's insane how people how people in the church view drunkenness, abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, all these different things that the Bible is very, very clear on. The church agrees with, is okay with. They're despisers of good, lovers of evil. Verse 4. It says that they will be traitors. What does that mean? It means that they're betrayers of friends and family. The, the biggest example of a betrayer I could think of is Judas, right? Going to the, the Pharisees and offering Jesus for the cost of a slave, giving over the Savior of the world for money. But let me ask you personally, how often are we traitors? You know, we have the Holy Spirit, us in here who are believers, who have the Holy Spirit within us, speaking to us, telling us not to do things, not to follow after things, not to be uh, owned or, or empowered, overpowered by these things. And we give ourselves over to that very sin. Traitors. And as we're less and less self-controlled, we'll become more and more traitors of the Holy Spirit and of each other to turn on one another. Traitors. Continuing verse 4, the 16th thing is headstrong. Headstrong, and that's a... Uh, recklessness or a stubbornness, not thinking of the consequences of their actions, not looking forward to the future, what's going to happen if we make these different decisions. This is what's going to define these men in perilous times, men and women. The 17th thing, it says haughty. It's high-minded. Again, thinking of yourselves better than others. thinking of yourself in a very high regard. Our culture tells us to have high self-esteem. That literally we go through problems in life, depression, uh, anxiety, because your esteem is too low of yourself. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. It says that you esteem yourself too highly. Well, how can you say that I hate the way I look? I have acne on my face. I have this weird crooked nose. By the way, I do have kind of a weird crooked nose. Why do we get upset at that? Because we feel like we deserve better. We esteem ourselves, our emotions, very highly. So if anything goes against our emotions, we're upset about it. It hurts our feelings. The Bible says esteem yourself lowly and everyone else highly. You won't struggle with depression. Think of yourself low. And then guess what? When you go to sit in the back at the celebration and you esteem yourself lowly, and guess what? Then the, the guy who's running the celebration comes and grabs you and sits you in the front seat. You'll be esteemed. You'll feel great. You esteem yourself lowly. You esteem others highly. These people will be haughty. Continuing in verse 4. Lovers of pleasure 
rather than lovers of God. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not bad to love pleasure. That's not the issue. The issue is when you're a lover of pleasure and not a lover of God. Because the love of pleasure is going to drive you into all of these different things. I'll give you an example. It is very pleasurable to be married and have marital relations with your spouse. That is very pleasurable. But to do that outside of the marriage bed is death. It's sin. It's not bad to be a, lovers of ple- be a lover of pleasure as long as you're doing it within God's confound of what's supposed to happen. Does that make sense? So these people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And there's a distinguishing factor there. Do we love pleasure more than we love God? And this is a real question. As Americans, we should be asking ourselves, if God told me to get, go to, I don't know, I'll think of just a place, Cambodia today, and suffer and have one meal a day and sleep on the ground, am I willing to do it? Because God told me. Or would I be upset because I have to leave all of the pleasures of life? My 4x4 truck, my steak on my plate every night, my soft, cushy bed. What do we love in life? What is the love of our life, I should say? Is it pleasure or is it God? Again, it's okay to have a a desire for pleasure in the confounds of God, but outside of that, when you love pleasure more than God, you have a really big problem. So now we move from the attributes of God, the description of, of, I'm sorry, the attributes of perilous men to the appearance of perilous men in verse 5. Verse 5 says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Having a form of godliness and denying its power. These perilous men are going to look godly from the outside but they're going to deny the power of God from their speech and on their beliefs on the inside. Now, it's very easy to think about what this looks like because we have the Pharisees in the New Testament. The Pharisees, as they walked around, they wanted people to acknowledge their holiness, their godliness. They wanted to look like the most godly people on earth. But inside... They were ravenous wolves. They were, they were uh, snake pits. They were disgusting. There's nothing good about them, nothing holy about them on the inside. Now, when I hear people talk about the church from the outside, from the world, and they say, oh, the church is disgusting. There are some in the church that are disgusting, that put on this holy front. And on the inside, they're, they're ravenous wolves. Now the question in regard to this, so we can read this and go, yeah, we need to not have anything to do with them because that's what it's going to say here in a second. But the question is, is, what's the truth about what we look like on the inside? What's the truth about who we are? Not the face that we paint on every day, 
and act like what's going on inside of us. And I guess the real question is, are we allowing the Holy Spirit of God to truly affect us? To change the way that we think? Change the way that, that uh, our, our emotions go? What we set our heart on? It says that these men and women are going to have a form of godliness, but they're going to deny the power. You know, the biggest way I've seen that done is through morality. I know that's a weird thing to think about, but when we're trying to force morality on people, cause people to be holy without Jesus, it's a very scary thing because it's actually what a lot of the church is trying to do is force morality on people, force people to act holy, and they don't have the Holy Spirit, so they they learn the language. They learn the appearance of godliness. And if you ask them a question about the Bible, guess what? They're going to have an answer. They'll know exactly what to say. Oh, I'm, I'm blessed, brother. It's good to see. Of course I'm a Christian. Why? Because I'm an American. There's a form of godliness. There's a form of morality. Some of the most moral people I know are false believers and false teachers. They hang out with groups called Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. It's this pharisaical thought that the whole world should be moral. What I'm looking for not is morality in people, but instead it's belief in Christ Jesus. Because what happens when you hang out with Jesus all the time? You become more moral. But not for morality's sake. Not so that you look good. It just happens naturally. My dad used to say to me, if I hung out in the barbershop long enough, I'd get a haircut. And that's the truth. When you hang out with Jesus long enough, you start looking like him. You start speaking like him. You start acting like him. Not because you're a moralist. Not because you're trying to be good. But because you love Jesus. We don't want to create those who are showing off godliness, but not knowing God. It's very dangerous. Because I don't care about how people act on this earth. I care about people getting into heaven. I know believers right now who are struggling with, with drug addiction. Believers, people who are going to heaven, who are struggling with drug addiction. The rest of the world will look at them and say, you call that the church? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, and they're not, the mor- they're not moralists at all. They're trying to stop saying the F word. I mean, we're talking about people who love Jesus and who are saved, who are dealing with the reality of their sin in their past. I'm not trying to create moralists. I'm trying to create followers of Christ. And as they follow Jesus... I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to convict them, is going to change their hearts and their minds, is going to direct them to truth. I trust the Holy Spirit. He said he's going to do that. I don't need to do that. It says, continuing in verse 5, And from such people turn away. 
Turn away from these people. The idea is to actually run away from them. Have nothing to do with them. We need to, to have nothing to do with those who are teaching people to be moralists or who are moralists themselves, who are not teaching people that they need the grace of Jesus Christ, salvation through the blood of Christ, and that alone. There's nothing else. It's not about getting good and then getting God. It's about getting God and allow Him to do whatever He's going to do in your life. Change you from the inside out, not the outside in. These people have the form, the form of godliness, but on the inside, there's no godliness at all. Verse six says, "For of this sort are those who creep into households, make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. They're wolves. They're literally seeing what they could gain." From, from people that they have authority over. I've run into a man who's very much like this. Sadly, I did ministry with him for a little while. And I thought he was right on the, the mark. The guy was leading more people to Jesus than I've ever met in my entire life. People, He would literally walk up to a group at the mall, and all of a sudden every one of them would be holding up a, a book of John pointing to the sky, saying they believe Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. I was like so impressed by this guy. And within a year, he was in bed with a young lady who was weighed down by sexual sin, sleeping with her, convinced her to marry him. He was a 54-year-old man and she was a 21-year-old girl. Convinced her to marry him and have his babies. They're now divorced. Kids are having to deal with separated parents. I watched this happen. It's easy to be deceived by them because they look holy. They look good. They look like they have everything together on the outside. They may be speaking the language, but the truth is they're not in the right place. They're not pointing people to Jesus. Chuck Smith used to say that he was just a one beggar telling all of the other beggars where the food is. He didn't see himself as anything high and mighty. This guy, he thought of himself very highly. He put on a, the form of godliness. He snuck into women's households who were weighed down by sin and led them away by various lusts. Verse 7, always learning and able to come to the... Uh, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now this is a hard this is a hard thing to deal with because I encourage everyone in the church to always be growing in the things of God. But the question is, are you able to come to the end of it? That the truth is in Christ alone. That regardless of what information you're you're able to gather, able to receive, the end of it is Jesus. Jesus is the truth. That's what he said from his own mouth. They're not able to come to the truth. Are we looking for truth in any other thing? 
we need to be very careful. Because these men who are perilous in perilous times, they're going to be those who are constantly looking for new knowledge, but never able to come to that finality of Jesus as the truth, as the finality of knowledge and wisdom. Because that is, that is the finality. So their appearance is going to be godliness, but it's false. Then it continues in verse 8 by saying, Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. Who is Janus and Jambres? These are the magicians that the Pharaoh had during the time of Moses. Moses would come in and he would do a miracle. He would His staff, he would throw the staff down and God would turn the staff into a snake. And Janus and Jambres would throw their staffs down, which were really snakes, by the way. They have this really cool way of stiffening snakes. They put them in a trance and they harden. It's, it's, I looked it up online. I was like, wow, I didn't even know that's a thing. They take snakes that are hardened and they throw them on the ground and the snakes act just like the miracle that Moses just did. But then Moses' snake eats both of those snakes. And then he does another miracle and they recreate that miracle on a much smaller level. It's not a real miracle. It's not saying that, that they're doing exactly the same. It's saying that they're they're perpetrating. They're showing things to be like godliness, but they're not. It's false godliness. It's a persona. It's not real. Here it says that they're going to resist the truth just as these men did. With false teachings. With teachings of morality. This is what we see today in the end times. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. They're disapproved because they're not teaching Jesus and him alone. They're teaching a moral gospel. It's only through Christ we have salvation. It's only through Christ we have grace. It's only through Christ that we have anything good. In, in regard to these, it says in verse 9, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifested to all as theirs also was. That's Janus and Jambres. When, when Moses turned all the sand into lice, they said, well, we can't, we can't do that. It was manifest. Oh, we don't have that kind of that kind of miracle, that kind of magic that's further than what we're capable of. The beautiful thing about things getting darker and darker in this world is that those who are light, those who are truly represent representatives of Jesus, and I'm not talking about pastors, I'm talking about children of God, those of us who follow Jesus Christ with our lives, as it gets darker and darker and darker, we're going to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. The world getting darker is not a, a, scarier, a scary thing. It's an exciting thing. I'll give you an example. My daughter, Ellie, she got this light-up ball. And we bought it during the day, and it was kind of cool. It was glowing. You could kind of see it. 
and you'd throw it against the wall and it'd get bright and then it'd fade off and you'd throw it against the wall and get bright. And she said, Dad, when we get home, can we go into the bathroom and shut the door and then it'll be really dark? Yeah. So we went into the bathroom. She got the ball, throw it at the wall. Boom, it's so bright. You could see this thing from a mile away. In fact, there's a mirror, so it looks like there's 10 of them bouncing all over the walls. As it got darker, the ball shined brighter and brighter and brighter. And that little girl got more and more excited. Guys, as it gets darker and darker and darker, and I see my brothers and sisters shining brighter and brighter and brighter, it's an exciting thing. It's awesome to be able to distinguish between those who are following Christ and those who are following self. Now we have a way to evangelize, uh, do evangelism. Now a way to, to reach those who are serving self, even within the church. Well, that's what I have for you this day. We're about done. So feel free to uh, fellowship, hang out as long as you'd like. I'd love to talk to some of you afterward. God bless. Let's pray. Father God, we just uh, thank you so much for your word. We know that uh, we desire to be those true followers of you. Not putting on a face, not following after these things that you've talked to us about in your word. Father, I ask that you do bless us and allow us to, to think about these things, to chew on these things throughout the week, to really do self-examination and, and see where we're at. Father, we know that your Holy Spirit is the only person that can change us, the only one that can change our minds and our hearts. We ask that you do that, Father. You guide us, your children. Father, I ask that you give us all a heart to seek you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.